I'm from a small little town in western Pennsylvania. And my name is Nancy Stivel, and I'm a PA. And I've got some more questions for you. How many PAs or practicing nurse practitioners do we have in the audience? Ah, not as many as I thought. So maybe 10? Uh, I said practicing PAs. Come on, students. You're Okay. Now the next question. How many of you are nurse practitioner or PA students? Almost as many as practicing. So now we're up to about probably 50% of the audience. And then the third question, how many of you are nurse practitioner or PA wannabes? That's the next generation of us. That's great. That's great. Well, I'm going to start with just a little bit of my story. I actually go back to 1973. Yes, there were PAs in 1973. I was a member of the second class graduating from where Chad's going to school, the Medical College of Georgia. There were only four girls in the class then, 24 boys, so you see how the demographics have changed. Now, how many of you have any idea how the PA profession started? Those of you who are PAs or PA students should know this. Alan. I happen to know Alan. I just met him. Alan. Well, in, in, the, in, the, in the armed forces, yes. And when? What era? Yeah, what era? I heard someone say it. Vietnam. That famous series of Vietnam. And basically what happened is all the, all the medical corpsmen who were serving as the, the um, surgeons in the field came back from Vietnam, and believe it or not, we had a doctor shortage in this country. So the AMA decided that they would start this profession just for a stopgap. Now, nurse practitioners came about the same time. Different origin came through the nursing profession, but nonetheless, to, fit that, to fill that gap. And when I was in school, they told us we'd last for about five years. Yeah. Until the doctor shortage caught up. But what the medical profession didn't really understand, and what the people of this country knew, was that we were going to um, develop a niche. Unlike the nursing profession or the, the MDs. And that niche was going to be so focused on what we'd been trained to be that it would be everlasting, I believe. And now, if you look at any um, list of careers to go into or job possibilities, they're going to be in the top ten, you're going to find nurse practitioners and PAs in almost any one of those. So back in 1975, I graduated and I started in family practice. Actually, I started with an HMO in Denver, Colorado. And we had to basically tell them then, get this, that we'd work for free for about three months to show them what a PA could do. Now, I'm not sure about the nurse practitioner startup, but that was, that was what it was like then. And also, we had no um, laws in our states that defined how we were going to be credited, how we were going to be licensed, how we could practice. So we became activists. We became lobbyists as well as professionals. So all of you who've come up behind those who preceded you, us gray hairs, just, just give us a little room. If we're not quite as techy as you are, we're not. We're not quite as up on the latest things. But um, we had the privilege of paving the way. And one of the things in being that long ago in the profession that I had the privilege of getting to do was to define us and to write out the mission statement and the, the goals and the objectives of this profession and start this profession an organization called the American Academy of Physician Assistants. So it's neat to stand here and see what has happened to the profession, but never in our wildest dreams did we believe that we'd be standing here in 2010 talking about sending us all over the world. And actually, for the last 10 years, that's all I've done. Oh, all. Greatest privilege to go around the world and here in the United States domestically and work in underserved areas as a, as a medical health care provider. So that's where my interest comes from, and we're going to start <clears throat> with the title, Mid-Levels. Um, oh, that is not very good. Can you s – I don't have any idea how you um, – does anyone have any idea how you adjust the fuzziness on one of these? Well, we're going to go with it because I uh, – I don't know, and hopefully you're going to be able to see that. But a little bit about this thing called the developing world that we're living in. And it certainly has changed, even in the 10 years since, 
since I've been in, in global medical missions. You'll all agree that our world is globalized. And that globalization has really affected the developing world. And it has put the social cohesiveness of the developing world at great risk for many reasons. The health systems are not performing in those countries as they should if there was a health system at all. The world <clears throat> is at an increasing risk, and I think we've all seen this and we would all degree, uh, agree, of disease outbreaks epidemics, natural disasters, and health emergencies. Does a six-month period go by that we don't hear of some catastrophic disaster having to do with the life and the health of people, especially in the developing world, who are so vulnerable to that kind of thing? Well, now that's weird, because that's the same slide. Well, maybe we fixed it. I think we missed one. Hang in there with me, you guys. Why is primary care so suited to health care in the developing world? Well, first of all, not only the health care professionals in the developing world, but the political entities in developing worlds are crying out for primary care providers. Because of the changing needs and demands in the developing world and the, challenges of, the cha challenge, challenges of that changing world, primary care is perfectly suited to, develop, or to deliver health care in the developing world. But just like we had a shortage of docs back here in the late 60s and early 70s, there is a global crisis for health care workers. Actually, a shortage of about 4.3 million doctors, midwives, nurses, mid-levels, and support staff. In sub-Saharan Africa, where I've spent the most of my last five years in short-term missions, is the worst. What are some of the common characteristics of what we would classify as countries who are labeled developing world? Well, first of all, their, their economies if there is such, are very dependent on producing products for the developed world. They're not exporting a lot. They're just trying to maintain life in their part, in their corner of the world. Traditionally, their, um, their social structures are very rural. High population. Widespread poverty. In fact, it's that chronic cycle of poverty that keeps them under that um, designation of developing world. And usually in those countries, there's a wealthy ruling elite class that doesn't necessarily minister to the needs of their own people who are caught in that chronic cycle of poverty. This is uh, fast facts from the UN uh, Millennial Project. Undernourishment is the underlying cause of one-third of all of the deaths of children in the developing world. Child mortality, praise the Lord, has been decreasing from 12.4 million deaths in 1990 to 8.8 .8 million in 2008. 65 out of every 1,000 childbirths end in death. And the maternal risk during pregnancy or birth about a half a million women die of complications. Now, you know in our country, seldom do we think of death as an outcome of pregnancy in our country. Certainly it happens, but not to the tune of a half a million women. There's some good news, and there have been in interventions that continue to change the statistics on child mortality. Use of insecticide-treated mosquito netting, and we'll talk about that later when we look at specific sites. Preventing HIV transmission, huge in the developing world, where we're actually giving pregnant women antiretrovirals to lessen the chance of that, trans, that disease being tr transmitted. And certainly the introduction of hepatitis B and H flu vaccines to the children of the developing world. 
three big diseases in what we call the developing world. Malaria. How many of you have ever seen a case of malaria? How many of those who saw malaria saw it anywhere but the developing world? One. Okay. Two. Excuse me. Malaria is a huge, huge killer of children and at-risk adults in the developing world. 243 million cases alone in 2008. 863,000 of those were deaths, and most of them under the age of five. And unfortunately, malaria, like other chronic diseases that are not necessarily adequately treated or correctly treated, is becoming more and more and more resistant. And we see that very definitely in the developing countries. Tuberculosis, again, a disease I had not seen a lot of. I think the VA hospital when I was in training was probably the only time. It is a huge uh, chronic disease and killer in the developing world. 140 cases in every 100,000 living in a developing world country. Detection, only about 62% of those cases are detected. And the success rate on those that are detected and treated, 88%. And again, that is because usually if it's detected, it's inadequately treated or it's not treated with the right drugs. And so we've got resistance. In fact, we've got four drug regimen resistance of tuberculosis. And that drug resistance strain, strains, is on, an, on the increase. And it's coming into our country with the globalization and world travel, as you can, you remember the case, was it about a year ago, the American that had been diagnosed but didn't know it and gone on a plane and I think went to three or four countries and my gosh, it was like an international FBI search for this uh, young man just because of the contagious nature of that um, disease and he had a resistant strain. HIV is the one we usually always think of. It's only one of the big three. Um, there has been a decrease since 2000, and of course we can be glad. That's, that's due to um, the, the availability in developing countries where, uh, where previous to 2000 they weren't even available of our antiretrovirals. But we still have 2.7 million new cases in 2008. I'm quoting 2008 because the 2010 figures aren't out from the UN Millennial Project. Um, 2 million HIV AIDS deaths. And this one's tough. Uh, 1.4 million HIV pregnant women. And of those, however, 628,000 have been treated with the antiretroviral treatment during pregnancy, and we're seeing drastic decrease in the transmission of that disease to their infants. These are some diseases that we don't often think of because they're really neglected tropical diseases. There are over... 1,000 1, million cases of these three tropical diseases that are sort of, well, cholera is now on the radar screen because of what's going on in Haiti. But how many of us think of lymphatic filariasis? Well, have any of you ever been to India? Along the coast of India, they actually, you actually, this is the first time I'd ever seen it, you will actually see community health care workers going in outlying vill villages with prophylactic drugs against filariasis. It's so common. And, of course, you've seen pictures of it with those big, huge elephant legs. It is very debilitating and very tough to get rid of if they get it. And then leprosy. We still see leprosy. Oh, I'm sorry. Did someone want to say something? Please feel free. I mean, if you've got experience, this can be very interactive. Um, obviously, a big one in developing world is the availability of drinking water, what we would consider clean water. 77% in 1990 in developing world countries did not have access to, to water, to clean water. Eight, no, that's not correct. 77% in 1990 had the availability, boy, am I glad I caught that, to improve drinking water. Now, that isn't by our standards, but at least it was improved. 
this whole effort to get clean water to the developing world is a, is a huge focus. Um, is it Bono? Yes. He's not only, um, isn't he the U2? Come on, help me out, you younger generation folks. I mean, his big thing is HIV, but also clean water. And, and it's that kind of movement that really has focused people on the developing world. Um, <clears throat> proper sanitation. Those of you who've been to the developing world, it's absolutely incredible. In fact, community education, health education, is probably one of the biggest treatments that we can apply to the developing world to spare lives for this very reason, just teaching them proper sanitation. Now, I'm going to go forward. I was going to do the examples first, but I'm going to instead, just close your eyes for a minute until I get to the... Because we're going to go right into why mid-levels are a perfect fit for what I just described as the developing world. Remember I said that I... I'm old enough in this profession that I had the privilege to be a part of writing our mission statement. And this is what it was back in 1973. And I believe it remains this. We as a profession dedicated ourselves to providing accessible, affordable, excellent health care in underserved areas. Now, I guarantee you, and one of my long-term colleagues is sitting here, do you back then ever did we think that we would be talking about providing care around the world. We were talking about here in the United States. But does that not fit what we're talking about here? Our job or our desire or our mission is not just to go and help, but it's to provide accessible, affordable, excellent health care in all those underserved areas. So I said that one of the things that the developing world is hungering most for is primary care because it is so much what they need. About 99% of all the health care that's provided in the developing world is primary care. So if, in fact, you're going into the developing world to provide health care, that's probably all that's going to be there is primary care. We as professionals, as nurse practitioners and PAs, have a tool, and it's called our history and physical. And I like to think, and I've certainly had it substantiated over the many years of my being in the profession and hearing from others, that one of the things that a PA or a nurse practitioner provides a patient is an excellent history and physical. Would you agree that that's, that's the first and foremost thing that you are trained to do and trained to do with every patient? That, is, that may be your only tool when you're in the developing world. Your ability to ask those questions to focus in on what the problem is and to examine with the amount of expertise that you have and maybe two tools, a stethoscope and an otoscope ophthalmoscope to make some kind of an educated decision on a diagnosis. Most PAs and nurse practitioners, before you ever even go into training, have had some past experience. We got surgical techs, lab techs, EMTs, paramedics, nurses, uh, aides, in fact, most PA programs require that before you go in. So you've got past experience that will equip you perfectly for being in the third world. Trauma is huge. And if you've got some EMT background, they're one of the most valuable members of a team. They can start an IV. Uh, they can do cut down. I mean, all the things that most of us don't do on a regular basis. But if you've got past experience in that, your current work experience. I was talking to someone in our fellowship booth, and um, they work in a very specialized area as a PA, and she's been working in that for some time. And gosh, you start to think, well, could, uh, they're not going to have that kind of a specialty in the developing world. It doesn't matter because what you will revert back to is that education that you had from the get-go, history, physical, basic science, differential diagnosis. And you'll be working alongside some national community workers who may not, they don't have all the anatomy and physiology and pharmacology and all that that we have, but they know the indigenous diseases and they know the people groups and they know the signs and symptoms. And together, it's an incredible team. I'd like to think of us as versatile and flexible. And you have got to do that if you're going on a team on a mission trip. <clears throat> We're trained as team members. In, in the PA program I went to, 
and this was a uh, experimental training. We actually, my class had 24 PA students, 12 nursing students, and 24 medical students. We all took the track the first two years. Ours was condensed down to one together. And we did our clinical rotations together. That was to build the team approach from the ground up. So we are taught to function within a team. And when you're going into the developing world, team's the way to go. Um, we partner with non-medical nationals, and we're used to doing that. We're used to part partnering with all the various parts of the healthcare team, physical therapists, pharmacists, um, nurses, and, and um, lab techs, and all of those. We like to work in teams, and we are used to working under government authority. Now, this isn't to say that other professionals aren't, but I'm just pointing out what we've been trained to do that works so well in the developing world. We've been trained to communicate. Now, the best thing to do when you're going into a country on a team is to know that language. Unfortunately, at my age, to get one more thing between these two ears and be able to have it come out in some cogent way is just so tough. I, I have very difficult time learning another language. I have tried. But boy, if you speak the language, fantastic. But if not, there are interpreters. And the interpreters become, you, you, you become a team within a day. And they love the fact that they're learning medicine from you. And I, I know it's been incredible by the, about the third day Someone comes in with two or three um, symptoms, and that interpreter just starts asking the questions that they know that I've been asking over and over again for them to interpret. In other words, they're learning too, and it's just a wonderful team approach. But we have been trained to ask, in layman's terms, simple questions. And when you're working with an interpreter, man, you, you, I don't, I, please don't take this wrong. You have to dumb it down because there is that language barrier. They, they may know English, but it's, it's broken English, and they certainly don't know medical English language. So, good listeners. Hopefully, we're all good listeners. And we were taught to really focus on body language. So all of those things are a great um, mix, again, when going into the um, developing world. Cultural sensitivity. I know that a lot of PA training programs now, um, our youngest daughter just graduated in, in 07, and she had a whole um, class on different cultures. And actually her program was in the midst of a culturally sensitive area, and they went out and worked in the different um, cultural settings. Mid-level training does include that. Uh, when you go, you need to know, read about the local culture. Uh, to get to know the local health care providers, their practices, folk medicine, especially in Africa. Africa is very much still practicing with witch doctors. Um, understanding all of that is, is just so key to how valuable you can be. Um, we don't want to go in there and, and, you know, basically tell them they're wrong and we're right and you've got to do it the white man's way. That is, that is just absolutely not the approach. Um, so... Hopefully, we're all uh, very sensitive to that. Um, how to go. Choosing the organization that, that suits your goals. And boy, you've got a wonderful opportunity here at this conference in the exhibit hall to go around and meet an incredible number of organizations, many of whom, many of whom are um, happy to take physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Um, I am a member of the Fellowship of Christian Physician Assistants, and we work with Christian Medical and Dental Association, and they have an arm of their organization called Global Health Outreach. And we send about 50 teams all over the world, and those are interdisciplinary teams with docs, with PAs, with nurse practitioners, with physical therapists, with pharmacists, with nurses' aides, nurses, and then with logistics people, spouses of medical care providers that have never gone in and they're saying, oh, my gosh, what could I do? Come along and we'll show you. And I have never been on a team where there's been a logistics member that wondered why they came, and within two or three days they didn't understand exactly why God had put them on that team. Um, all these things we went over uh, in a talk I did yesterday, and some of you may be hearing this repeating. It's obvious kinds of things when you prepare to go. You need to have the immunizations. Um, Supplies, 
CME may or may not be offered in, in your particular, um, on your particular team by your particular organization. I referred to this yesterday. There is a book called um, um, Medical Care in Developing Countries. Uh, Christian Medical and Dental at the booth would be able to either sell you a copy of that book or tell you where to get it. Uh, getting prepared not to, to be the expert, but just to be similar, or to be familiar with all the different kinds of diseases that you're going to see. Some of it will be things, I mean, they still have URIs and eye infections and a lot of dermatitis, but um, getting ready for things like that before you go will be very helpful. Supplies, this is all pretty obvious. I'm not sure that we need to spend a lot of time on it because I want to take you to, the, to a few of the sites Financial support, again, that's all uh, information that you may already have thought about, or we can certainly answer those questions at the fellowship booth or at the GHO booth. There are some stay safe overseas kinds of things, and some organizations prepare you for this ahead of time, but you can't be overly prepared. Your passport in the developing world is worth sometimes as much as ten to $12,000. Um, passports are something that are sought after. And boy, when you go, you definitely want to keep it with you and you want to be sure that you've left a Xerox copy of it behind in your um, closest of kin's possession. Um, again, I'm not sure we need to spend a lot of time on this. If there's questions, I'll be happy to see if I can answer or maybe someone else can. Yes? Um, I was talking about medical insurance, medical malpractice insurance. It is available. It's very expensive. I know that GHO has looked into it as an organization to provide for all of those that go, and it's so expensive uh, that at this point we're weighing the pros and cons. Um, and one of the reasons that there's even a question is what will malpractice insurance paid for in the United States do for you if anything should happen in the third world? And in the developing world, we don't go with any other um, goal in mind than to provide absolutely accessible, affordable, excellent health care. There is never any intention to do anything but that. But mistakes do happen. Most often, they're not going to see that as a mistake. I mean, it, it's kind of the Good Samaritan protection. And so uh, don't fret over it. I guess, is the reason that I put it up there, because that's always our first question. Well, who's going to cover me? And that's basically the reality. Any other questions from what I skipped over? I didn't mean to, but I really want to just um, give us some time to, to share some experiences and also go to some of the sites. Um, some do's and don'ts, and again, these are really obvious. Eat on the street and die. The rule is you don't eat anything unless you can peel the skin off it and eat what's underneath, or that it's been cooked to our standards. Now, why do I say that? Not because we're special. It's just that our GI tracts aren't used to dealing with what their GI tracts are. And if you're going to provide health care and you become the one that needs the health care, it's not very, very beneficial. So um, no ice in beverages, and you just get used to that because of the water. The only water you drink is something's in a bottle and it better be sealed and you better be able to pop that seal or you don't touch it. Um, dairy products, avoid animals, all of those things, um, shearing needles. I mean, much of this is, is pretty obvious. This whole thing about culture shock, um, I don't know if we can adequately prepare, and maybe some of you who've been there um, would have some wisdom. But it all sounds so great and so glamorous. Yeah, I'm going on my first mission trip, and, oh, I'm going to fly to Central America, or I'm going to Haiti in the midst of what's been one of the worst devastating um, earthquake and now um, tropical storm, or I'm going to Africa. So that's kind of the romance part. And then there's reaction when reality sets in, and I'm about to go. And that gets a little uncomfortable. A little scary. And then you get over there and you recognize what you've gotten yourself into. And I can describe it for another hour or two or three and show you a whole bunch of pictures. But anybody that's gone knows that there's nothing like reality. And that's going to be a totally different thing than what you imagine.
But then you resolve yourself to the fact, hey, I'm here. God has invited me to be a part of this work. I've accepted his invitation. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make a difference in the amount of time that I'm there. But you'll go through that step-by-step process. And then you'll come home. And I'm not sure which is harder, the going or the coming back. And again, those of you who've been there, perhaps you can um, offer some insights. What was it like coming back? Anybody that's been there? How many have been to Developing World? Oh, come on. You're all, I'm singing to the choir. <laughs> you should be up here. Tell me. You were going to say. Yeah, <laughs> took you to lunch, gave you trips. And it was because? Yeah. So it was realizing what, what you'd left behind and being overwhelmed by all that you were given. And that is tough. That's tough. Anyone else? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a trip to Costa Rica and Nicaragua, and uh, we actually had, we talked through a lot of this before we went and on the trip, and when we were there, um, one of the local missionaries said to us, it's kind of like a bridge between, we all came from the States, we came from there um, to Nicaragua, and she said, there's a bridge between the two of them. And you cross over the bridge to get here, but then when you go back, you really can't get off the bridge again. So you're just stuck somewhere between the two, and you have to figure out where that is for you and how you adjust with that. And so it's kind of neat. She says, you'll never be back there completely. You're always stuck on the bridge. You'll be with the bridge dwellers forever. So So how'd you do coming back? Um, It was was really an interesting adjustment. I hadn't expected... um, I, I hadn't expected... To, to feel so blessed as I did. And that was kind of something that people tell you, and you're like, no. Well, yeah, I know I'm blessed, okay. Um, so that was one thing. Eating food was really different. Like what I expected from a meal, I was like, no, I don't want that. It's you mean when you came back or when you were there? Back. Okay, no, okay. Um, and just the difference in people, how people approached each other was really different. Um, just like there, there, was, there was a different atmosphere. And it was completely different here where people are just like a go, go, go. And there it was like a, hey, I have time for you kind of an idea. Big, big thing. Big thing in in that, what we call the developing portion of the world. Anyone else want to share an experience, either re-entry or while you were there? Mm -hmm. Sir. Oh man, that dizzy patient that's been had that complaint for a year suddenly just—that's <laughs> a great one, and I haven't had that mentioned. But boy, can we all attest to that fact? It does give you a different perspective. Someone else had a hand up here. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think it hit me like just some of the women. I was in Burkina um, Faso, West Africa, and tough area. These women would come and they would work so hard all day for maybe you know a dollar, and then I, I remember coming back and went on vacation with friends. Yep, yep. Uh, and any of you who were in our plenary session with Rick, when he talked about, how many of you were there today? Uh, yeah. And he talked about how long is it going to take for each and every one of us to die and remain dead? And he didn't add this, but I think I can, to our stuff. Because... I don't think for a minute that God wants us not to enjoy life. And he determined that you and I would be born in this particular country, not in Burkina Faso or Russia or wherever. And we need to rejoice in that and not be necessarily guilt-ridden about it. But we need to look at it as an opportunity 
to make a difference in the rest of the world, and especially those of us who have this gift of providing health care, which really is like a ticket to meet their felt needs and earn the right to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone else? Maybe as I show you some pictures and tell a few of my stories, please feel free because this is a, a group effort. This is the garbage dump in Mexico. Now, who was there in the dump? Does it sort of look familiar? This is Mexico City, which is the largest city in, uh, in Mexico. This was nine years ago, so forgive me if I look at some of my notes just to remember facts. Um, at the time I went, there were seven dumps within the city. They've now consolidated and closed them because so much of the world's attention has been on these dumps. But basically, they're run by the mob. And they need to keep the people living on the dumps because the people living on the dumps forage through the garbage that's brought in every day and either get things that can be resold on the street, um, resold to industry, or feed themselves. And the way they keep them there is they ply them with drugs and alcohol. So you can just imagine these are families living on top of garbage. Their job is to go out and forage in it and to make a living and to live there all the while being plied with drugs and alcohol. It's a horrible place. But in the midst of this, the organization I went with then, um, OSI, has a church built now, and we set up a medical clinic. So you are in the, on top of the garbage, and you are going to provide health care in a tent, open air, with the, they bring in the carts from the city with all the garbage, donkey or horse driven and just park that guy right there and he relieves himself and here you are providing health care. Yeah, that, that was my reaction. But there is no health care for these people if we're not there. And so that's what we did. This is where they live. This is our portable clinic. Oh, thanks. That's fine with me. Turn turn them off. Okay. Um, we went with medical. We were the pharmacists. We didn't have pharmacists with us. We had dental, um, some portable dental chairs, dentistry in the develop. We never can have enough dental team go with us. It's life saving in the developing world to pull a tooth that's infected. Lots and lots of kids. Most of these kids did not even have shoes. And those garbage dumps are full of um, rusting steel, aluminum, so a lot of trauma. There's the dentist. You see pretty horrific things that we weren't going to be able to do a thing about. But we shared the gospel with each and every one of our patients. And as far as those mothers were concerned when they left, we had, been, we had, we had blessed them. We had seen their child. We'd laid hands on them. This was an osteomyelitis, a fistula from osteomyelitis. I hadn't seen that. And, well, I've seen it anyway. It was notable to me at the time. Now we're in Zambia. Zambia is sub-Saharan, just above Union of South Africa. Um, it was colonized by the Brits, used to be Rhodesia, is now split into Zambia and Zimbabwe. Um, about the size of Texas, 10 million people there live there. Um, number one highest killer of of, um, of humans from um, malaria is in, is in Zambia, and it has a very resistant strain to all of the anti-malarials that we currently have. HIV incidents, if you were asked the State Department in Zambia, they would tell you um, as much as 30 to 40 percent, it's more like 80 percent are infected. Uh, no, they have resources, but they can't get the copper out of the ground. Um, they have been invaded by the Chinese who have bought up everything and basically a very corrupt government. So they have community health clinics, and these are the patients that would be lined up and ready to go when we would arrive at 8.30 in the morning. We were seeing thousands of people, beautiful people, um, just like anywhere else when you go. They, whatever you can do for them whatever amount of time that you can provide for them. They have a health care system. There are seven hospitals, and I use that term lightly, in the country. 
Um, if you are, if you go in the hospital, you must pay. You must be able to pay up front. So very few can go. Um, you have to bring your own sheets. You have to bring your own family members to take care of you, and they have to supply your food. So you say, well, gosh, why am I going? What are they giving me? That's a good question. Um, this was a physical therapist that went on our team. And this particular year, um, had a young boy brought in. He was 11 years old. I was telling someone this story recently. And he was carried in by his father. His, his, uh, both knees were at a right angle in fixed position, and he had not walked from the time he was 8 years old. And um, sat down, and it was obvious he had had uh, rheumatic fever, um, rheumatoid, juve, excuse me, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, obviously had not been diagnosed, had not been treated, and when he couldn't walk, they just let him sit for three years. Well, Julie, the one in the pink, always would bring adult-sized crutches, but this time, at the very last minute, she found a um, pair of child's crutches and just threw them in, not knowing why. Well, they were for that little boy. Within 45 minutes of me finding her and her beginning to work to loosen up those tight joints and teach him how to use those crutches, he walked out of that clinic. So every team member is important, and whatever God lays on your heart to take, be sure and take it if you can get it in, because here was a perfect example of what it did. This is tuberculosis, but it's extra pulmonary. I had never seen this. All those nodules are tubercular nodules. So obviously she has had undiagnosed tuberculosis, had been treated, but it was inadequate. More extrapulmonary tuberculosis. What is that? Extrapulmonary, it's outside. Those are, those are tubercular nodules that are around the joints. What? On the last slide, was that a leg or a foot or elbow? Oh, that was an elbow. Yeah. This is post-surgery. I'm going to show you this picture. Um, this woman I'd seen the year previous. She was HIV positive. She had five children. She was prostituting in order to get um, the money to buy the antiretrovirals, and she only had enough for partial amounts of her drugs. So she was very sick. Um, she was not going to be able to care for her children if she didn't get care. And she had what we thought was possibly a Carposi sarcosa on her foot. So we gathered some money together, and unbelievably so, for one year of uh, her antiretrovirals and the surgery, I think it was less than 100 U.S. dollars. We were able to leave that behind, and this was the result the next year. This was her foot, having had that mass removed, and this was, and I can't remember her name to this, but I remember her in my heart. So there are success stories. Um, trauma is huge, and in Zambia, we worked with a lot of the street kids, and there are way too many orphans in this world, and um, they find a family of orphans, and they forage for themselves, and they care for one another, and this boy was actually 12 years old, and that's his spine. And what happened when he was seven years old? He fell out of a tree, and the spine basically... Um, collapsed, as you can see, and this is the way he was living. So you can imagine what it's doing to his entire internal organs. On top of it all, in order to kill the pain of living in the streets, foraging for garbage, getting through um, a year of weather with nothing, nowhere to sleep, and the pain of all of that, um, huffing or sniffing becomes a huge problem in the developing world. And they basically put kerosene and gasoline and one other hydrocarbon together. They put it in an old plastic bottle, put a cloth over it, inhale it into their lungs. It is almost impossible to break this addiction. And there are ministries that are trying to do so. But So this was that young man. And here he is with his bottle. And as much as we wanted to tell him that that was killing him, who was I to tell him that? Um, that was... that that. That part of our, our team, when we go to Zambia, working with these street kids is, is, is really tough. We have a national partner in that country, GHO does, Pentecostal Holiness Church, and they have opened orphanages after orphanage after orphanages and feeding programs through their churches to care for just such children. This little guy, here's another example, throwing something in at the last minute. Africa, very sunny. Sun exposure to eyes, cataracts. See a lot of development of early cataracts in kids. So we took sunglasses. Well, one, they were cool. 
So we had storms of kids, you can imagine. But this little guy got his sunglasses, and he already had some signs of cataracts, so hopefully those sunglasses will make a difference. This was a girl who, um, yeah, this is a Burkitt's lymphoma, and obviously we were not going to be able to do anything for her. There is a central hospital in the capital of Zambia, but again, treatment not so good. So Mercy Ships was coming up along the west coast of Africa, and we were able to make arrangements, um, but by the time she got there, they weren't and I, the follow-up was totally impossible. We, we managed to get some phone calls back and forth once we got back, but then lost touch. But she knew the Lord, and uh, so did her mother. So if she's not this side of heaven, I know where she is. I had not ever seen that. Now we're in India, and I'm going to have to go quickly. I'm just going to give you – India is much more uh, sophisticated than Mexico or Zambia, and yet this was a surgical suite. Excuse me. Um, this was the um, the surgeon's supply cabinet. India has more people per landmass than China. 1.4 billion people live in India. I have never been in a more crowded part of the world than India. It is non-stop people. People, automobiles. Um, man-operated bicycles, scooters, and animals. And usually all of this traffic is passing on a two-lane road. And somehow they make like six lanes of traffic on two-lane highway. And they're constantly going at each other. And they don't have stoplights and they don't have stop signs. So you can imagine that trauma from moving, uh, moving vehicles is huge in this country. And we were in Pondicherry, which is not one of the largest cities and densely populated, but it was incredible. This part of India was, was part of the tsunami that hit um, Sri Lanka. And they are, I was there in 05, and I think I was there two years after the tsunami, and it was still devastated. As you know, Hindu, the major um, religion in, in India, and these are sacred. If an automobile or any moving vehicle or anyone maims a cow or an animal, all of that traffic stops. That person is arrested and taken away. Now, if a human is hit, you're not going to see that. I remember we saw one go down, a bicycler. It took probably an hour and a half for anyone to tend to that person. Traffic just kept going. It was unbelievable, but not so, of course, with the animals. Typical housing. Again, you'll see this all over the developing world. It's not unique. This would be a clinic. We just set up a row in a, in a school and um, did blood pressures and physical exams and, and treated to what extent we could and shared the gospel. And even though we were in India, we had been invited by nationals, by the Delete, which is the lowest of low castes in that country, which is still very caste-ridden. And it was quite a feat because many of these people had never, ever seen a white man, let alone been touched by one, because they're referred to as the untouchables. And we went into the villages and into their homes, and it caused the people of that whole area that were non-delete to give the deletes a great deal of respect because the white man had come to visit them. We didn't know all of that. We simply went to serve the Lord and to, to offer health care. Well... Um, that pretty much is, is what I have. Um, if you turn the lights up. I'd be happy to um, entertain anyone sharing your experiences or any questions. None. Uh-huh. Usually the sending organ uh, – the question was how does licensure, your licensure as a PA or a nurse practitioner, work in the developing world because we come under the supervision of a, a licensed physician. If you're going short term, um, your license will uh, 
be requested by the sending organization and will be filed with the government agencies in the country that you're going into. Your responsibility will be to ask your physician uh, or tell your phys- inform your physician that that's what you want to do and get his or her permission to do that. Now, that's all just for the United States. When you get to the third world, again, um, it will be, you will be credentialed through the government officials in the capital of the government you're going into. Some will go without a physician. Others will go with another physician. Others will go without physicians. But if the country that you're entering gives you that okay, which you must have, then you're okay, as long as your physician back here knows that. It's, it's kind of loose, and it feels uncomfortable to all of us who are so used to this licensing and credentialing and medical insurance and so forth. But that's the way it works. It's the sending organization that files those papers for you with the country that you're going into, and you've let your physician here know that you're going. Now, if your physician says, oh, no, you're not, well, then you're not. So, that again, it's that cooperative partnership. Anyone else? Right. So how have you found that the countries are recognizing the licensure of NPs and PAs in, country, in areas where that's not even a concept? Yes. Um, well, certainly all the countries where GHO goes, which is the organization I've gone most with, all of them recognize us as providers, as physicians. Uh, they know we're, we're nurse practitioners or PAs, but that we're all in that same category, and that's the way we function. Um, OSI, the organization I went to Mexico with, same thing. Um, in Russia, didn't go there, but same sort of thing. They recognized us as providers, all in one lump sum, and we had and our licenses. Were those were all short-term. I have not gone long-term. Yeah. Anyone else have any experience long-term? Yes. Yes, yes. I'm glad you brought that up. The Fellowship of Christian Physician Assistants has a website, and on that website we have a missions link. And in, within that missions link is a list of all of the organizations that currently take PAs, um, those that provide supplies, that sort of thing. Uh, FCPA.org, long-term and short-term. .net, I'm sorry, .net, Yes. Okay, well, thank you for your attention, and um, I hope that this has in some way encouraged you to consider uh, as a mid-level going into the developing world.